You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to continue in our teaching series through the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible with you or um, uh, your Bible app, uh, why don't we follow along together? Uh, This morning we are in chapter 4, starting in verse 8. We'll start off by reading this passage, 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Paul reflects on the past with uh, these Christians in Galatia, this church. If you've been with us for a little while, walking through this passage, you know how much he loves them, how he planted this church, how he's been encouraging them, how they've been captivated by a false teaching and have uh, distorted the gospel truth. And as we begin this passage, it's good to realize where we have been, um, specifically last week. Last week was all about our adoption into the family of God by God's grace and through faith. Uh, This picture was given uh, to fix our hearts on Christ, a time when we were without God, when we didn't know his mercy and he loved us and was gracious to us and we were adopted, accepted into his family, not because of anything we had done, but because of what he had done. And a day is coming that has not yet come that these people were meant to look into the future to when they were to enjoy the full blessing of being in the family of God. Now there's some blessings that we have now. We have forgiveness of sins. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We uh, have freedom in Christ. But, but if we were honest with each other, we would say, well, there's still some things about uh, God's promises that have yet to come true. We're still waiting to be completely free from the consequence and pain of sin. We're still uh, looking forward to the day when we are made perfect as God is perfect to be free of all temptation and pain and sorrow and death and sadness. And Paul wanted these Christians to remember that, to remember who they were and to look forward to a time that was coming where they could set their hearts, set their sights on the promised blessing that was to come. And now in verse 8, he kind of turns us around. Instead of looking at the future, he turns us around to face a different vantage point. He says, remember who you were. Look at the past. He says, formerly. 
It's a word that specifically points to a period of time that's opposite from what he was just talking about. He was just talking about the blessing that would come in the future time. And they're thinking, this is going to be great. This is good. And he says, okay, now let me turn you around and have you face the past. Think about the life that you once lived. Think about the existence that you had without God in your life. There's joy and there's rest in the future. And then there's sorrow and pain and disappointment and regret in the past. He has us thinking about our former life before God, before we knew God. And it was a life of darkness and a life of rebellion and confusion and ignorance and just generally feeling lost in their life. And somewhere in between those two time zones, this is where we find ourselves right now. Between the, the former life, where well, we're not who we once were, and the future life, where we're not yet who we are made to be, perfect in Christ, And here is where we find ourselves in the present. Sometimes it can be frustrating reading the Bible because we look at it and there's stories of who we once were and what we're looking forward to. And we might wonder, does it have anything to say about the here and now? This is all great. I realize that there's forgiveness for the past and there's hope for the future. But what about today? And this is where Paul meets them. This is where our passage meets us this morning. There are answers for the now, the here and now. Our present, our life, our present confusion, our present struggles and temptations for the, the present lack of direction for our life and questions. Well, what do I do and where can I turn? And sometimes we go to the Bible and say, okay, I realize that I'm forgiven for my sins of the past and there's good things to come in the future. But is there anything good for today. Common frustration that some of us might have when we go to the Bible. And this passage is one of the most insightful passages in this letter for the period of time where you and I currently live. Not in the past, not yet in the future, just right here in the present. And we have yet to realize the good that is to come, but we're not in the darkness that we were once in. We are here in the middle. And for the Christians that this was written for and for for you and I today, it comes down to this basic principle that Paul is going to wrestle with with them. The principle of worship. Worship. Now, when I say worship, I don't know what ideas come to mind. Uh, You are likely to think about singing and and praising and, and, and listening to Scripture being read and reading Scripture yourself and praying and participating in the Lord's Supper. When you think of worship, you're thinking maybe of all the activities that happen on a Sunday morning. But this is, this is thinking of worship in a, in a much too narrow sense. The way that the Bible talks about worship, he's talking about the things or the people in whom we put our greatest hope, our greatest value, our greatest energy. To, to worship is to put our heart into something and to let that thing or that person direct every movement of our life. That is the thing that we worship. We all have those things. Maybe this sermon can be a diagnostic for you, as I know it is a diagnostic for my own heart, a way of sorting, a way of discovering what are those things? Who are those people that we put our energy into, our heart into? Those are the things that we look to for hope and peace and rest in this life. Those are the things that we worship. And Paul is wanting to direct our attention to, okay, you're not in the past, you're not yet in the future. What matters now in the present is what do you worship? Who do you worship? 
And there are two main categories of the answer to this question. The first is God. The first is God, the one who works out his grace in our life to bring about his good purposes for us. And the second category is everything else. How we will live life in this present is one of worship for one of two things, God and his grace and purposes for us or everything else, which he calls non-gods. He just throws everything else into the category of non-gods. And right now in your life, in your present, where we are living between the past and the future, these two influences are readily available to each of us. Every single one of us, we're, we're readily are, uh, available to, to worship one or the other. And it's important to consider because whatever we worship, whatever we bind our heart to, um, in essence, Scripture tells us we will become a slave to. Whatever we bind our heart to will control us, will direct us, will influence us. And we will be bound to this thing or this person for the rest of our life. And so Paul says it's either God or it's something else. I often think of my own Christian life as either, you know, growing, growing as a Christian or kind of just staying stagnant, you know, just kind of being idle. Maybe you think of that too. It's like I'm either growing or I'm just kind of like blah and just kind of not doing much. But here there's really only two directions. It's not growing or staying the same. It's either growing or turning back to former things. It's either growing or regressing. We're either worshiping God or we're rebelling against God. There really isn't a, a place where we're just kind of not doing anything. Our heart is always engaged in some kind of worship. Turning back or having Christ formed in us. That's what Paul says. And he says, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Let Christ be formed in you. Those are the only two directions. He's, Christ is either being formed in us or we're turning back to a former life when we didn't know God. But let's back up a bit and, and let, let's frame this time together uh, in our passage. Paul has two main categories. Uh, those are the ones we'll walk through this morning. Uh, in our sermon, we'll have two main categories. One, we worship God who works his grace in our life to bring about his good purposes for us. And then the second category is everything else, these, these non-gods. And that kind of frames his passage. It frames our time. Let's begin with the everything else first. Let's begin with talking about what, what Paul is getting at when he says, you know, either worshiping God or everything else. What are these everything else? What are the, the non-gods? Uh, he calls them non-gods. He calls them elementary principles of the world. You know, in the ancient world, um, in the first century here, uh, every elemental thing of the world was, had a God attached to it. Water, fire, air, the sun, everything had this transcendent power and had a God associated with that power or presence or some kind of phenomenon. And those gods were worshiped and, and value was given to these gods and, and influence and power was given to these gods. So functionally, every created thing became a god. Uh, these things could be worshipped then. Every, th every created thing could be worshipped. We worship the, uh, the god of the sun. We worship the god of, of the air. We worship the god of, of um, different seasons and different calendar events and different, um, 
natural phenomenon that would happen. And the concept's not so ancient, it's actually very relevant to us today. It just takes a different form. Can you think about how we might be prone to, to worship or place significant or even ultimate value in created things? Every created thing can be worshiped. Every created thing can become an idol. The thing or the person in which we place our hope, our desire, our rest, our greatest energy, that thing becomes the idol in our hearts that we, that we worship. Fitness or physical health is a good thing that can become a main thing in our life. An idol, something that defines our goodness, something that defines our hope and our peace. Politics or political ideologies, good things meant to serve people and to help people flourish in this world can be placed in the wrong place in our life. It could become something that becomes like a functional God to us, where our hope is placed in, in political influence and in political ideology and political outcomes. My life is only good if this happens. This is my hope. This is driving all of my thinking Any created thing can become a thing that we worship. Anybody want to be brave and maybe offer another one? Nope. Yeah? Just shout it out. That's fair. <laughs> Thanks for trying. People. Like relationships. These people can be spouses. They can be children. They could be friendships. I need you to like me. I need you to feel that I'm acceptable. I need, you to, to, I need you to think I'm a good person. And if I don't have you in my life affirming you, affirming me, if I don't have you in my life acknowledging me and accepting me, then, then I don't know if I matter anymore. What else? Work, career, success, our drive, our, uh, we put our desire into that, our hope put it all on the line. I need this job. I need this to happen this way. And if I don't, then what does that say about me? What else? Money. Money. Finances. Financial security. Is my future secure? Am I going to be okay? Well, look at your bank account. Okay, I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's great. Mm, yep. Very good. Now you can't shut up. Everybody's like, <laughs> I love it, I love it. Sorry, I'm not supposed to say shut up. Um, yeah, am I the kind of person I want to be? Am I the kind of person that someone else wants to be? Am I the kind of person God wants me to be? Am I demonstrating those character traits? Any others? Status. Status can be a lot, of, a lot of things, right? It could be depending on what group you're, you want to be in, right? It could be social, economical. It could be um, what you drive, where you live, yeah, what you wear, what you look like. I, I'd, I'd love to keep going. I'm going to move on, though. You see, these created things, good things. Not a single one of those things was bad. Those are great things, blessings from God, but they can become our ultimate thing. They can become like a functional savior in our life. Comfort and convenience. I didn't hear that one. We worship that. 
I will do anything in my power and ability to not feel uncomfortable, to not feel out of control, to not feel vulnerable, afraid, and lonely. That's the thing you worship. That has become your God. And what Paul wants to do, what he wants to uncover for these Galatians is the same issues that he wants to uncover for us. We are always worshiping something and we are, we're not that far away from just an opportunity to worship a created thing and make an idol out of it. No one is truly unreligious. Some might say, oh, I'm not a religious person. Of course you are. We all worship something. We all pour our heart into something and someone. We all say, this is the thing I desire most. We are all religious. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. Idols are good things, basic created things meant for the good, for our good that we make a motivator for why we do what we do. Why do you do what you do? Why do you feel what you feel? Why do you act in the way that you act? What is driving your behavior? It's God or it's something else. There's two categories. We're driven by one of two things, God and his purposes for us or something else. Food, comfort, sex, health, security, basic elementary things of this world, as Paul says. The greatest danger is not that we would stop worshiping but that we would worship the wrong things. Our basic, our basic danger is not that you and I would just become lazy in our relationship with God, but that we would turn back to former things that we once trusted in. And when we do this, when we make good things and take them and make them an ultimate thing, we become slaves to it. As Paul says in Galatians 4, 8 through 9, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Here's how, here's how an idol or a, a, a created thing be, um, makes us slaves. It causes us to make it an, an over-desire, an overly desirable thing that we want. It, it, it becomes something that we don't just desire in our life, but that we desire too much. You know, let's take a couple. Lust, sexual desire. Uh, a normal-sized desire for something evil, we could think of it like that, right? We can think of, oh, that's a, it's a, it's a normal-sized desire for something bad, but it's not that. It's an oversized desire for something good. Some of us grew up in an environment in our home, even still within that thinking that some of us are confused about those desires, confused about the desires that we have. When we lust, when we have sexual desires that we feel those, we've been told those are evil, don't feel those things. It's evil to feel the way that you feel about it. It's dirty, it's shameful. And so we grow to understand that those desires are evil, and now think of it in a different sense. A desire, that desire is not bad. It may not be bad, but you have taken that desire and made it an over-desire that is driving your behavior and your actions and your thinking so much so that you feel as if you need to express that desire. 
And now the object of your desire becomes your functional savior. I need this to happen. I need this person. I need to act in this way. And then that desire becomes your God. You become a slave to it. Paul says, now you're handcuffed. Now you're a slave. Now this desire controls your life. You're captivated by them. You're being shaped by them. And you cannot do anything apart from them. Sounds like it's a God in your life. Success, a very good thing, no doubt. But what happens when you fail? What happens when you fall short? What happens when your work is critiqued? When you don't get it in on time? When you fail at that project? What happens when you don't get the grade you wanted in school? You think, if I could just get it right, if I could just do better, if I just didn't mess up, then everything would fall into place. You have an oversized desire for something very good. You want it too much. It becomes a God to you. Now, what is driving your desires, what's driving your emotions, what's driving everything that you want is not the moment-by-moment affection that God has for you in Jesus Christ, but it is how you appear to others and how you perform in this world. It sounds like that's a God in your life. It sounds like that is your Savior. Paul says you're a slave. You're a slave to these things. Here's a verse that makes my heart sink in our passage because it's painfully true in verse 16 to 17. Paul says to them, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They shut you out that you may make much of them. Paul is referring to the leaders who, who are false teachers who have come along, distorted the gospel, and have lured these Christians away from trusting in God and worshiping God to something else. And therefore, they have become slaves to these natural things and these created things. Here's why this phrase is like a punch in the gut for me. Everything we worship, everything that we place ultimate hope in, every good thing in the wrong place will eventually say to us, serve me. Everything that we say, I need you, will eventually turn around on us and say, now you serve me. And Paul is saying, they're not for you. These things are not for your good. They're not to help you. It feels like these are good, comfortable things that will give you a good life. But what they do is they they entice you, they get you hooked, and then now they say, now you belong to me. Be careful then, he says. Be careful then what you worship. Because the thing or person that you worship will always say, You belong to me, and now you must serve me. You know, worshiping these idols, worshiping all of these things, the examples that were given, they require very little faith, no faith at all. It's the most natural thing to do. It requires no faith at all to lust in your heart. It requires no faith at all to have self-pity. Who has difficulty with that? (laughs) It requires no faith to become angry when, and, and wish a person dead. It's the easiest thing to do in the world. <laughs> it, it requires no faith to hold a grudge. It requires no faith to gossip. It requires no faith to give into every impulse and emotion that flows from your heart. It requires no faith at all to sin against God. And that's exactly what sin is designed to do to require no faith, but faith is difficult. 
faith comes into our life, it invites us into a life of turning from what is easy into a life that may cause difficulty and pain. It draws us out of a place of comfort, out of our familiar territory. It calls us to God, which is very unnatural for us, and a place that's very unfamiliar for us. We don't normally think in these terms. Faith calls us out. Non-gods require no faith at all because the non-gods are the things in our life that we go to when a life of faith becomes difficult. They promise comfort and peace and rest, but only deliver destruction and sorrow. All of these non-gods come to us in a time of sadness, in a time of struggle, a time of emotional, spiritual, physical fatigue. And they say to us, do you want to be comfortable? Do you want rest? Do you want to break? Do you want to breathe? And we say, yes. And they say, come to me. I can help. And we give in and it enslaves us. And it doesn't require any faith for us to do that. You see, when we stop worshiping God, we go to a place of familiarity, a place of comfort. We go to the things that fulfill us quickly and effortlessly. We go to the junk food. We go to, you know, metaphorically speaking, we go to the things that we just, we just crave, that we want, that will make us feel better for a moment, and then we feel sick. How do we recognize those non-gospel things? How do we recognize what's not good for us? You know, I think of the people, uh, God's people, uh, consider the God's people that were enslaved in Egypt. This is a theme that has become a, a pattern of redemption for God's people, a, a story, a true story of redemption that is a type of a future redemption that we have in Jesus. And the Bible continually looks back to this time period to show the faithlessness of God's people in a time of weakness. Consider these people for 400 years in slavery in a foreign land. They spent their days in hard labor, literal slavery and oppression of the worst kind that you can imagine. They had no temple to worship God in. They had, were stripped of all dignity and value. Um, they were treated like animals. They prayed for God to rescue them from slavery and bring them into peace. And God came in through Moses, rescued them, and brought them into the wilderness where they wandered for the next 40 years. And they said, we wanna go back. This is hard. I wish I was back in Egypt. How could they say that? The temptation to return to a place of slavery is never far from a Christian. The temptation to return to a place of comfort, even if it's far from God, is never far from you and I. The desire to doubt God's faithfulness in times of difficulty does not make you an unbeliever. It just makes you human. It's so close to our heart. That's what we're drawn to. We want to be at rest. We want to be comfortable. When the way forward is hard, we're tempted to turn back. We hear voices clamoring for us to come back. And if we listen, we will find our minds flooded with the memories of how good we thought life used to be. And yet we forgot how, how bad it really was. And, and, and Paul asked the question, how could you turn back? How could you do that? 
Almost like he's asking the, the, uh, the, the Jewish people that were um, God's people who were in Egypt that wanted to go back, saying, why? How could you want to do that? Knowing Now you're with God, rescued from slavery, and going to a land of peace and hope. Why would you want to turn back? Knowing what you have in Christ, he calls you out of sin. He makes you an heir to share in all of his blessings in perfect fullness of peace. Why would you go back to those worthless principles of the world? And then Paul says, have I been wasting my time with you? Everyone loves to hear that when we mess up, right? Have I been wasting my time with you? We talk about that a little bit. If you've been, um, it's important to figure out what Paul is talking about here because it'll determine how we feel God may be talking to us and dealing with us when we do fail and when we have doubts and when we have confusion. If you've been with us from the beginning of the series, you're no stranger to Paul's like abrupt stingers, right? He just, he's constantly stinging them with comments like this. Um, imagine, imagine a parent um, practicing with their child, uh, teaching their child how to ride a bike. And you're out in the street, and you're going up and down, and, and, and you're, just, you're out there, and you're sweating it out. And you're working for weeks, weeks and weeks on end, and you don't see a lot of improvement. And then the father says, what's the point of being out here with you? You're just not going to get it, and you're never going to get it. Now, let me be clear. That's not what Paul is saying. But that sometimes that's how we feel God acts towards us, when we're not getting it, when we keep falling into sin. He says, what's the point of keep walking with you because you're just not getting it, and I have got other things to do? Imagine a father saying something different holding that child by the shoulders and getting down on, on his or her knees and, and looking in the child's eyes and saying, when will you stop thinking about how weak you are and how uncomfortable this learning process is? When you, will you begin setting your heart on what you know, the joy of how far you have come, the hope for what awaits you, setting your heart and, and, and vision on riding through the neighborhoods and chasing down the ice cream truck man and having fun and feeling the wind go in your hair, the joy of knowing that you will ride one day and you are getting better and you are not where you used to be, you're not where you want to be, but, but I am with you and I will help you. Why would you want to give up right now? That's what, the, that's what he's saying. That's what Paul is saying when he's saying, like, I've I been wasting my time. It is not to shame them. It's not to guilt them. It is because he knows. He knows the gem of, of relationship with Christ that should not be forsaken or turned back against for any reason at all. To get the, the rest that you want in Christ in ways that you've never rested before. The security and assurance of his love that no one else can give you. Why would you step off the bike now and walk away. You see, whenever we sin, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that is in the place of trusting in God that's causing me to do this? What is it? Is it my comfort? Is it my fear? Is it my hope in something else or someone else that is causing me to turn back from God's promises and obedience and faith in him to something else, a former way of living? What is it? What are you afraid of? What do you love more? What have you been distracted by? And Paul even says, become as I am. 
be like me. It's not because Paul has hit this pinnacle of sanctification, but he is saying, fight the fight of faith with me. I'm fighting it every day. Believe me, I don't want to be uh, exposed to the difficulties of following Jesus, but I know what I have. I know who I am. I know who loves me. I know what hope awaits me. Fight with me. Fight with me and don't give up. Don't shrink back. Rest fully in the hope of God. It is worth it. You will not be disappointed. I want to close with this story, this allegory from our passage because Paul completes his thought with this as well. Um, in verses 21 to 31, we didn't read it, uh, but it's, it's, it's a narrative of the Old Testament history. Uh, Paul applies the current situation of these early Christians to this allegory, to this story of Abraham and his two sons. So he finishes this teaching and reminding of the gospel and encouragement of them and saying, don't shrink back, keep going. And then he tells a story to kind of tie it all in. All in. He tells this story because the Galatians are trying to work their way to God through their own initiative and to get God's blessings through their own initiative, something Abraham did and failed. They're trying to fix their own problems. They're shrinking back to a place of comfort. And God says, that's not my way. I've called you to a path to walk and I want you to walk in it and it's not as comfortable as you want, but uh, be obedient and I am with you and you will not be disappointed. And in doing this, Abraham, in, in, in rebelling against God and not, not doing it God's way, but taking things in his own hands, he actually creates more problems than he had at the beginning. Um, have you heard of the, if you remember the nursery rhyme of... Uh, the, the woman who swallowed a fly. Uh, so there once was a woman who swallowed a fly. Um, I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. Uh, she swallowed a spider to catch the fly. Then she swallowed a bird to catch the spider. Then she swallowed a cat to catch the bird. And she swallowed a dog to catch the cat. And then she swallowed a cow to catch the dog. And then she swallowed a horse to catch the dog. Yes, there was an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. It's a good one. <clears throat> that's, okay, so that's not the allegory in the Old Testament that Paul was referring to. But, but here, they have abandoned the promises of God and taken things into their own hands and, and tried to find solutions to problems they had. And in, in, and in taking things into their own hands, they were creating a, a bigger hole for themselves. Like this old lady who swallowed a fly uh, and tried to fix it by swallowing a horse eventually, and then she died, of course. Okay, Abraham was like that. God said, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to have an heir. He's going to be, he's the promised, he's the promised blessing. My, my, my blessing to you and for the whole world, in fact, and to all nations will come through this heir. Uh, he's 90 years old, 100 years old. God hasn't answered his promise yet. He has not given him a son. So Abraham takes things into his own hands. Sarah cannot have children. His wife, Sarah, and so Abraham has a child with uh, a slave, Hagar. And the son of this slave woman, Hagar, um, is born. And Abraham's like, okay, good, I got a son. And Abraham says, but that's not the son I'm talking about. The promise will not come through this son. 
the promise will come through a different son, the one that I've promised that you have yet to have. And so Sarah would eventually become pregnant with Isaac, um, the son of the promise. And from his, this son would come Jacob. And from Jacob would come 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus would come from these, this, uh, these, these sons uh, from, from Isaac. So Abraham's spiritual relapse caused great pain. Um, in fact, Osama bin Laden was born through that line of Ishmael, of the son of the slave woman, and of a lot of other bad things have come about from that too. And they continued to fight in that area of the world because of this. Okay, God is faithful. His promises are true. And Paul says, you're not the child of a slave woman. You are the child of promise. So act like it. You're not a child that needs to take things into his or own, her ha own hands. You're not one that's cut off from God's promises. You're not one that's far from God. You're not one that needs to doubt his love. You are the child of promise. You're a child of God. We just got done last week talking about adoption into God's family. You are not a child who needs to find your way to God's love. You are a child who's received his promise of blessing. And you will at some point, because life is difficult and God seems slow to acting, you will want to shrink back. You will want to take things into your own hands. You'll want to turn back to something other than faith you will want to take it into your own hands and it will not go well if you do. If you try to become right and better by looking to your own initiative, you will only create greater problems. If you trust in God's initiative, if you trust in his grace, if you trust in his righteousness, his work through Jesus Christ for you on the cross, if you trust in his resurrection, if you trust in his promised Holy Spirit, which is for us a guarantee of his uh, future perfect presence with him. If you believe that you're a child of God, then you will share in all that God has for you. Being a Christian is not as much about what you know about God, but it is about, as Paul reminds us, what God knows about us. He knows our weakness. He knows our failure. He knows our sin. He knows you at your very worst and he still gave his life to be with you. You don't need to perform. Worship him. Rest in him. And give your life to him. You'll never regret it.